See if you can stretch your heart to encompass all those different living beings in different forms, different life forms, having different experiences. Some of them happy, some of them miserable, but all of them wanting happiness and not suffering. And all of them overpowered by afflictions. So creating so much cause for their own suffering in the future and harming other beings and causing suffering now. And yet it doesn't have to be this way because the ignorance and the afflictions that lie behind and fuel our samsara are things that stand on shaky ground. They're based on misconception. So as our wisdom grows and we can identify our misconceptions and counteract them, then the afflictions and the polluted karma fall to the ground. They have no support. So that's our mission. That's our purpose in life to free ourselves and others, and to sustain the Dharma for future generations so that other people can also attain full awakening. Let's do that with a heart of compassion. Okay, so we got uh, a very thoughtful question that came in that says, I've been thinking, uh, I'll have a question about last week's teaching on samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. I've been thinking about the difference between things being an illusion and things being like an illusion for a few years now, and I'm still puzzled by it. Okay, If the definition of illusion is a thing that is or is likely to be wrongly perceived or interpreted by the senses, a deceptive appearance or impression, a false idea or belief, then if that's the definition of illusion, then why isn't it correct to say that phenomena are illusions 
or have an illusory existence. Okay, well, first of all, that isn't the definition of illusion as Buddhists use the word of illusion. Okay, so that's, that's part of the problem, okay? Um, because when ideas are transferred into another language, you pick a word that is kind of similar to what you're trying to express, but very often it doesn't have exactly the same meaning because it's from another culture, another religion, and so on. So from a Buddhist viewpoint, when they talk about things that are illusions, they mean things that appear to exist one way, but actually exist in another way. Okay? So it doesn't mean just like, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors and uh, a false idea or something that's, that's wrongly perceived. It's something that appears in a false way. Yeah, not just like uh, a scarecrow appearing as a person, not in that kind of way that's in a conventional way that we can all recognize a scarecrow isn't a person. But in the, in the terms of the mode of existence, so things appear truly existent, inherently existent, but they do not exist truly or inherently. So that's the false appearance. So they are like illusions in that they appear to exist one way, but don't exist that way. Okay? So if we think of the way things conventionally exist, you know, that's how, in terms of, you know, functioning things that arise due to causes and conditions, how they function in the world, but their ultimate nature, their actual mode of existence, okay, is, is not how they appear conventionally. So we're talking about conventional truths, things that appear true to an ignorant mind, and ultimate truths, which are how they actually exist. So in terms of us sentient beings, our senses perceive things in a mistaken way because they they appear and our mind grasps them as having their own inherent nature, whereas they don't. So we see things that exist due to causes and conditions as if we were seeing something that has a fixed identity that doesn't change, that is really that object. Okay? So that's what we're talking about when we say like illusion. Yeah? So the thing that's difficult for us is we say, oh, things appear truly existent, but they aren't. But we have no idea what true existence is. 
So for us, oh yeah, things appear to have some nature of their own, but they don't have that nature, you know, some inherent nature of their own. And we say the words, but what is this inherent nature that things appear to have that they actually don't have? Yeah? And we can't identify that very easily. That is the object of negation in the meditation on emptiness. But identifying the object of negation is not easy because since beginningless time, we have always had the appearance of true existence or inherent existence. Yeah. So we've never had the appearance of things being empty of that kind of existence. Yeah. So it's hard. so when we say, oh, things are like illusion, they appear to exist in one way, but they don't exist in that way. We go, well, what kind of way do they appear to exist? I mean, everything I see, it just it's just how else could it appear to exist? They're all just real things. Some of them are material, some of them are ideas, but they all, you know, they're all there. And I can touch them and feel them and watch them interrelate, and they exist exactly as I perceive them. Okay? But our senses are mistaken. Okay? And even our mental consciousness, the way it grasps things, how they exist, is mistaken. But we don't understand what the mistake is. So I like using the analogy of somebody who was born with sunglasses. So imagine, here's this baby, comes out of the womb, they're wearing sunglasses. So their whole experience from the get-go is seeing things that are darker, colored by the sunglasses. And if you say to that person who's never seen anything but the shaded appearance with sunglasses, that things don't exist that way, or they appear dark, but they don't really exist that way, that person can't identify what you're talking about because they've never seen light things, things that are lighter. And they've never seen things that are not shaded by their sunglasses. Okay? So this is the same thing with us. The same thing. And that's why in the emptiness meditation, the first point of identifying the object of negation is the most difficult. Yeah? Because it's not like we've seen reality and then forgotten it. No, we've never seen reality. But we falsely believe that what we see is an objective reality. And when somebody tells us that that's mistaken, we go, no, it isn't. It appears that way to my senses. My senses are not mistaken. And everybody else sees things the same way. Yeah? Like if I ask you, is this a thermos? Does it look like this thing is a thermos from its own side without depending on anything else? 
It appears that way, doesn't it? When you see this, you don't think, oh, somebody made it, and there's all these different elements, and, you know, there's a top and a bottom, and... No, we just see thermos. It has its own nature inside the object so that anybody who walks in the room knows this is a thermos. It's not a doorstop. Yeah, it's not a rhinoceros. Yeah. It's a thermos objectively out there. And we all agree. Yeah. So then when somebody says to us, uh, excuse me, but uh, it doesn't really, it appears to exist that way, but it doesn't really. We go, what are you talking about? I and everybody else see it. It exists that way. Okay? It's like trying to tell somebody who believes in a QAnon conspiracy theory that it, it, it doesn't exist that way. There's, there's no such thing. And, you know, they say, what are you talking about? You know? Yes, there is. I know. I know. I've seen the numbers involved, that there's three of this that are added to five of this, and then you divide that by, you know, 14 and a half, and then it comes out to the 45th president, you know? And you try and say, mm, well, not exactly. But they say, oh, yes. Okay? So, yeah. But it's not just Q people who, who believe in conspiracy theories. When we walk into a room and we go, I don't know if the people in this room like me or not. I don't know if I fit in, if I belong. That's just as made up as any old conspiracy theory. It's our mind fabricating things that we completely believe in. Okay, so of course there's different levels, you know. If I believe that, um, what was it that, that one of them said that the uh, was it the coronavirus? was caused by Jews beaming down something from, from spaceships to the earth. It was something like that, okay? So uh, there's, there's those kind of conspiracy theories, which somebody, you know, with a, uh, a reliable consciousness can refute and say, no, that isn't true. But then there's how things appear, their mode of existence that is a much deeper uh, misconception yeah. and is much harder for us to identify. Okay, so that's, that's you got a little bit better idea what illusion means. Okay, so things are not an illusion because illusory things do not function you know, they, they appear like that, but they don't function as what they appear to be. So, like, 
when you see um, water in the distance on the asphalt, there appears to be water, but there isn't water. So that's an example that we can relate to of how something appears, but it isn't actually that way. But the appearance we're negating isn't that water, that a mirage looks like water. What we're negating is that things appear to exist inherently, but they don't. They actually exist dependently. Okay. So when you see a mirage, yeah, the appearance of water on the asphalt cannot perform the function of water. If you go up there and you're really thirsty and you bend down and start trying to lick the, the water because you're so thirsty, are you going to get any water? No. Okay? So there's a difference between uh, a, that kind, the example and what we're, our example is being of, okay? In the sense that, okay, you can bend down and try and, you know, drink the water on the asphalt or, you know, wherever it is, but it's not going to quench your thirst. Yeah. But, yeah, we see this thermos as inherently existent. It doesn't exist inherently, it exists dependently, but it still functions like a thermos and it can still hold water. Okay, so that you can see the difference. Yeah, when you look at a reflection of your face in the mirror, that reflection looks exactly like you. But does the, can the reflection function the way you function? Can you, you know, if you took that reflection to your job or to your school, yeah, and somebody, you know, call, you know, for, they call the role, you know, okay, Johnny, is Johnny here? And the reflection, <laughs> you know, got held up. Is that going to count out for, count for Johnny to be in the classroom? No. Okay. But the actual face of Johnny functions like a face. Okay. The reflection doesn't function as a face. Okay. And the reason I'm explaining this, it's coming as I read his question. Okay. So is the word like just pointing to the fact that things exist and function conventionally, or is there more to it when we say things are like illusions? Okay. The like, again, refers to things appearing to exist one way, but they don't exist in that way. They appear inherently existent, but they don't exist inherently. That's what the like is for. If you said they are illusions, then you would be ne negating all of conventional reality because 
you would be saying that everything here is like an illusion in that it doesn't function as it appears to be. Okay, but things do function. Yeah, we have conventional existence. In many Vajrayana teachings, the word like is missing, or is it implied? Or maybe the philosophical basis is different because the tantras are strongly influenced by Yogacarya. This has nothing to do with tantra or not tantra. Okay? The, the Vajrayana teachings, um, they can be practiced from the Yogacarya viewpoint, but you can only get so far on the path. But ideally is to practice with the Prasangika viewpoint. Okay? And they would say, yes, things exist like illusions. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wouldn't say the tantras are any more, uh, are more strongly influenced by Yogacarya than Prasangika because, you know, there's different schools that have more of a Yogacarya influence that, you know, might be seeing tantra through those eyes but not in the specific tradition that, that we've, we're talking about here. Okay. Another thing that confuses me is the recorder analogy. Remember the recorder. Venerable Chudrin said, what's the difference between a recorder in a dream and an actual recorder? The, and she said, the recorder in the dream vanishes as soon as you wake up. And the recorder in the dream cannot record anything. There's an appearance of a recorder, but there's no recorder. So it is in that way that we say things are like a dream. Because when you're in the dream, the recorder appears to be an actual recorder that will record things. But that recorder... You know, you can press the button of the recorder in your dream, but when you wake up, yeah, where is the recorder? And even if you dreamt of your own recorder, which is on your bedstand, if you then press the record, the play button, is it going to play what you recorded in the dream? No. Okay. Okay, so uh, this person said, they're still quoting me, there is an appearance of an inherently existent person, but there is no inherently existent person. Now, the person who wrote this says, but the recorder in the dream could very well perform the function of recording in the dream. Okay. Well, it looks like the dream recorder performs the function of recording something in the dream. But is there a difference between the dream and your life? Yes. You know, when you dream that you are flying past the sun and the moon by flapping your arms, you know, are you really doing that? There's a dream, there's an appearance to the mind. But just because something appears to the mind 
doesn't mean that thing exists. So in terms of the analogy, there's an appearance of, wow, look, I'm flying around the sun and the moon, and this is great. Yeah. But, did you know, if you when you woke up, if you then went to the New York Times and said, do I have a story for you? I flew around the sun and the moon, and, you know, NASA didn't even shoot me down. This was great. I can go and, and help the Ukrainians, uh, you know, g- get rid of the Russians because I can just go there and fly around and spook, spook them or something, you know. And are people going to go, oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're, you're, you're on, you're on. You're going to do that. Now, they're going to send you to the loony house, okay? Because there's a difference between an appearance to the mind and, you know, something that exists. So we go, as soon as we say, oh, something that exists, then we go, oh, it's inherently existent out there objective. No, it exists, but it doesn't exist inherently out there objectively unrelated to our mind. But that doesn't mean it is our mind or that there's no common reality. Yeah, that everything is just a dream. Because everything is just a dream. Then I guess, you know, you can go out, you can kill people, you can do everything because nobody's experiencing any suffering because they're all just things that are appearances to my mind in a dream. Yeah. Is that going to work? Yeah, the cops just pulled you over and you said, but officer, you know, I I shot somebody, but there wasn't a real person there. They were just a dream. Yeah? You think the cop's going to believe that? Do you think the person you shot is going to believe that they're a dream and only exist in your mind and so they really didn't get hurt? Okay. So in this analogy, um, what does actual recorder stand for? It stands for the conventionally existent recorder that functions like a recorder. Okay. It stands for the dependently arisen recorder. So my understanding is there is no actual, that is, inherent thing. Okay, negating inherent existence does not negate all existence. And this is one of the, when they talk about the the two extremes that people fall to, one is absolutism, thinking uh, that things do inherently exist. And the other is nihilism, saying, well, you, enga- you negated their inherent existence, so they don't exist at all. So that person is thinking, if it exists, it inherently exists. That person can't tell the difference between existence and inherent existence. So if you negate inherent existence, then they say, 
all existence is negated, so nothing exists. So that person confuses total non-existence, nothingness, with the emptiness of inherent existence. And they also confuse existence, conventional existence, with inherent existence. And so in their minds, these two pairs, the two items, are have are synonymous, you know? And so, yeah, so things have got to inherently exist. If they don't inherently exist, then nothing's there. Yeah, then it's all a dream. Then you can do all you, whatever you want. Yeah, because there's no law of karma and effect because we just negated everything. Okay, so that's, that's the the extreme of nihilism and why it's so dangerous. Because if we go to that thing and say, well, there's no karma and its effects, there's no ethical conduct, there's no real person out there, there's nobody who experiences pleasure and pain, these are all just appearances to my mind, other sentient beings don't really exist. Yeah? That, that's completely gone way far over to the wrong idea. Okay? That's not what the Buddha is talking about. Yeah. So things exist inherently. No, do they do not exist inherently. They exist conventionally. And conventional existence is, like we always say, a little bit messy. Yeah, Because if you look for the exact, Thing that conventionally exists, you are looking for inherently inherent existence, and you're not going to be able to find it. Can I use you for as an example, Buddha Bear? So everybody looks. Here's Buddha Bear. Yeah, everybody knows, don't you? Bodhibug, you know this is Buddha Bear, don't you? Good, I'm glad. Okay, uh, let's put you down, uh, Bodhibug. Don't fly away quite yet. Okay, so you're so here's Buddha Bear. Everybody agrees. Here's Buddha Bear. Okay, uh, now let's analyze and tell me where or what Buddha hair Buddha Bear is. Okay, we all agree there's Buddha Bear. Everybody knows. So what is Buddha Bear? This paw, this paw, this paw, this paw. If you slice Buddha Bear open in the middle, this is, don't freak out, this is just an example. If you sliced him open right down the middle and you took out all the stuffing, are you going to find Buddha Bear anywhere in that stuffing? Is Buddha Bear the skin on the outside? If you cut Buddha Bear's head open, yeah, even if he had a brain and you pulled him out, yeah, I know you have a brain, I know, okay. So you pull out Buddha Bear's brain. Oh, they think I'm in the nut house. <laughs> But if I say they pull out the stuffing, then you're offended. Oh dear, what do I do? 
I can't win either way. Okay, anyway, they open up your head. Is Buddha Bear inside there? Is Buddha Bear one of his eyes, his nose, his mouth? Is Buddha Bear his, his, her, sorry, her, her voice? No. So where is Buddha Bear? When we don't analyze, there's an appearance of Buddha Bear. But when we analyze to find out what exactly is the referent of the word Buddha Bear and who exactly Buddha Bear is, we can't find Buddha Bear. And yet, when you walk in the room and you look on the table, and you say, Buddha Bear is sitting there. Okay? So conventionally, Buddha Bear's sitting on the table. Ultimately, you can't find who Buddha Bear is. It's just a bunch of things that are not Buddha Bear that are put together in a certain arrangement that we have agreed to call Buddha Bear. Yeah, outside of being merely designated upon the collection of parts arranged in a certain way, apart from that, there is no Buddha bear. But there is Buddha bear that exists nominally as merely designated. Okay? So things don't inherently exist. There's no actual Buddha bear, but there is Buddha bear. Okay? So that, that's why we say things are like a mirage. They're like a dream. If they were a mirage, if they were a dream, then they couldn't function. Okay. Apparently, in ancient India, um, I've never seen this, and and I, you know, I've asked my teachers if they've seen this, and none of them have. But apparently, in ancient India, there was a kind of magic that you can do, where if you had stones and sticks and stones. Okay, sticks and pebbles. A magician could put a salve, I think, put some substance on the sticks and stones and then say a mantra to change the way the audience's perception worked. And then where the sticks and stones were, the audience... Yeah, who, who, who's, who were affected by the mantra, uh, saw horses and elephants. And apparently they looked like real horses and elephants. They didn't look like, you know, pinatas or stage, you know, staged things that, that were brought in from some movie set, you know. 
but the horses and elephants were there and they were snorting and they were kicking up dust and some people were terrified of them and some people wanted to take them home to their village and you know and everybody was so excited because you know there wasn't elephants and 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 horses and now there are okay but there's, there were actually no horses and elephants there. Yeah. To the person, to the audience, whose eyes were affected by the mantra, and I can't remember if the salve was on their eyes too or on the object, but anyway, they were, they were affected. And so the misperception. So for the audience, yeah, they saw thing they saw real horses and elephants yeah and they believed they were real horses and elephants for the magician the magician had the appearance of real horses and elephants but they knew that there were no horses and elephants there because the magician knew that they had just put the salve and the mantra to make them appear and people who came later to the magic show, just saw sticks and stones because their eyes were not affected by the self and the mantra. So ordinary beings are like the audience. Yeah, We see things that are not inherently existent as inherently existent in the same way that the audience sees things that are not horses and elephants, they're really sticks and stones, sees them as horses and elephants. And they're totally befuddled because they, they not only have the sense appearance of these huge animals, but they mentally believe that there are these huge animals there, you know. And you don't want the elephant to step on your toes. Okay. If you, have you ever been near a real elephant, like up close? It's in India. I was at a, um, a sanghadana where they were offering uh, lunch to in Bogaya to all the sangha. And, uh, and they had a real elephant uh, in the, it was in a tent, you know, because there were so many people we wouldn't fit in the room. And there was an elephant standing in the middle. And I was walking past, well, kind of near it, and it was like, this is big. <laughs> you know, this is huge. You know, and it's like, uh, Okay, I better move my feet because if this elephant moves, you know, shuffles their feet, I'm going to get squished. Yeah. So the audience is totally fooled by the whole thing. Okay. The aryas are like the magician. The aryas have realized emptiness, so they've seen the lack of inherent existence in their meditation. But when they come out of their meditative equipoise on emptiness, they still have the false appearance of true existence. Because it isn't that you see 
emptiness once and then all of a sudden all your ignorance is gone. You know, we've had the ignorance affecting our minds since beginningless time, so it's going to take a while to counteract it. Okay, But the Arya beings, you know, they know that the appearance of the horse, they, they have the appearance of the horses and elephants, uh, you know, but they know that they aren't real. So it's like in their break time, they, they see uh, conventional things, yeah, that appear inherently existent. But because they also perceived emptiness directly, they don't believe those appearances. They know they're false. Okay. And the person who comes afterward to the magical show is like the Buddha. They don't have, that person has neither the false appearances, nor do they think those appearances are real objects. Okay? And that's because the Buddha's cleared all the ignorance, all the defilements from the mind, so the false appearance no longer appears. Okay? So, yeah, so dream life and regular life are very different. Don't confuse them. Yeah. When you come out of the, the haunted house or the magic mountain, I forget what it is, in the California Disneyland, okay, when you're coming out, you look in front of you and there's a mirror reflecting you and there's a ghost sitting next to you. Okay, it looks like a friendly ghost, not like Casper, but, you know, equally friendly. And, you know, is there a real ghost sitting next to you on the car as you are exiting the haunted house? Yeah. A little, a little kid may say, oh, there's a ghost, and be scared, and their parents will say, no, there's no ghost. There's just an appearance. That's like in the mirror, like the face in the mirror. It looks that way, but it's not really that way. Okay, so that's like an illusion. It appears one way, but it exists in another. Okay, that was a long explanation for a question. Let's see if we can continue on. Because this is an important point. Yeah, because if, if you don't understand this, then the, the examples uh, don't make much sense and you can get really confused by them. And there is, I mean, there is a thing. Many people take their dreams as reality. And, you know, you dreamt of something happening and you take that as a message that that thing is really going to happen. Yeah, but it was a dream. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. It, it certainly wasn't real in the dream, although it appeared real, and you may have reacted emotionally to it, but that doesn't mean that that event actually occurred in your dream. Okay, so we're on page 207. There's a verse and a half above, and then we start right below that. 
Although they are empty of inherent existence, the person aggregates, aggregates and 12 links individually appear to be inherently existent to our minds that are polluted by ignorance. They resemble a dream and an illusion in that they appear falsely. They appear to have their own essence and exist from their own side without need any need to be conceived and labeled. They have some existence from their own side, independent of any of our minds. Okay. So they appear that way, although they do not exist that way. These mistaken appearances come about due to the coming, toge coming together of causes and conditions, just like a mirage appears on the road as a result of causes and conditions. This is the beauty of the analogy. Yeah, all these false things we perceive are due to causes and conditions. The conventional things that do exist, exist due to causes and conditions. Okay. The mirage, the mirage itself exists and functions. Okay, how does the mirage function? It fools people. Okay. So the mirage exists and functions, although the water that appears to be there is a false appearance. So the image of your face in the mirror functions. Yeah, you can use it to, to shave your head, but there's no face in the mirror. There's not a real face in the mirror. Similarly, the person aggregates and 12 links function, although their appearance as inherently existent is false and mistaken. Just as inherently existent sentient beings bound in inherently cyclic, uh, inherently existent cyclic existence do not exist, there needs, you know, there are no inherently existent beings practicing the path and no inherently existent nirvana to attain. So all these things, you know, the agent who's acting, the object that's being acted upon, the action itself, everything involved in samsara and the path to awakening exists dependently and arises due to causes and conditions. Yeah, but they don't exist inherently. So this also is showing that inherent that em the emptiness of inherent existence and dependent arising are com completely uh, compatible. Yeah, they come to the same point. And the low, but the lower tenant systems can't see that. The lower tenant systems say, yeah, all these things exist dependently and they're inherently existent. Because if they didn't exist inherently, they wouldn't exist at all. Okay. And so, you know, this is exactly what the Prasangika is 
and the Majamikas in general refute. Here, too, the agent, action, and object, the person practicing the path, the path itself, and nirvana lack any dependent nature. And the Arya Rata Nakara Sutra says, the Tathagata has said of those who go toward pacification, meaning going towards nirvana, that no goer can be found. They are proclaimed to be free from going. Through their liberation, many sentient beings are liberated. So there's no one who's going. Yeah. There's no path they're going on. There's no liberation. And yet, they are liberated and other beings are liberated too. In the scriptures, when they say things like no goer, or in the Heart Sutra, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, it's referring to no inherently existent eye, no inherently existent eye, no inherently existent goer, no inherently existent nirvana. Okay. But it just says it doesn't always put the inherently existent in because it just becomes too awkward to keep saying that word again and again and again. And also because it affects your mind when you say there's no this, there's no that. It makes you think that by negating the inherent existence of something, you can't just go back to your usual way of grasping that thing as inherently existent. Okay? So when we say, yeah, the... Uh, there's no inherently existent thermos, yeah, but there's a thermos, we go back to thinking, oh yes, uh, there's a thermos, and it's an inherently existent one that exists out there objectively without any need to be uh, conceived and designated. Okay, Because remember, we've never seen things as dependently arising. We always see them as inherently existent. So when we say, oh, there's no inherent existence, but things exist conventionally, you know, we go right back to grasping them as we did before. It's like, what would be an, a, a good example? Maybe it's like getting stoned or getting drunk, you know, and you're having a really good time, your mind is, you know, in la-la land, and then, uh, and then you wake up, you know, you go, oh, you know, I better cool down, and then you go, um, this, isn't, this is not a good example, you know, but you go right back to, to your old, yeah, in, you know, you're loaded and you realize, you know, this is not very good for me and I, I'm not seeing things right, I'm not doing things properly. So, okay, so uh, yeah, I'm not going to do this again. And then as soon as you, uh, you know, call it quits, then your mind goes back to the same old way of, but it feels so good and there's no harm and da-da-da-da-da. 
So it's the same way. We negate inherent existence, and then afterwards we go right back to grasping it and thinking that's the way things are. Okay, so that was kind of an analogy, although not a very good one, but I think you got the idea across, okay? If we search for inherently existent aryas progressing towards nirvana, we cannot find any. Their going on the path, their activity of practicing, also cannot bear ultimate analysis. So ultimate analysis is when you are analyzing to find out what something really is beyond just the appearance. Inherently existent liberation, too, cannot be found. Nevertheless, Aryas practice the path, realize emptiness, purify their minds, and become free from the six realms of rebirth. When they have generated bodhicitta and attain full awakening, they are replete with all the perfect qualities to lead others to nirvana as well. While all these agents and actions do not exist from their own side, they exist and functions on the conventional level. If they existed from their own side inherently, they would be frozen in time and space. They would be independent and could not be affected by any other thing. Yeah? If something is unaffected by any other factor, can it change? It can't. It can't become something new because change involves change. Yeah? While all these agents and actions do not exist from their own side, they exist and function on the conventional level. Although ultimate analysis refutes their inherent existence, it cannot destroy their nominal, illusion-like, veiled existence or their ability to function on the conventional level. Okay? So volume 8 goes into this a lot. Volume sent, uh, 7 gets you into it, you know. The Pali tradition expresses the same thought. In speaking of the four truths, Buddha Gosa said, In the ultimate sense, all the truths should be understood as void. All four truths should be understood as void. Because of the absence of any experiencer, any doer, anyone who is extinguished, and any goer. Hence this is said, for there is suffering but no one who suffers. Doing exists although there is no doer. Extinction of samsara exists but no extinguished person. Although there is a path, there is no goer. Yeah, this is poly tradition. Uh, I wonder what the Tibetans are going to say when they read this. 
because I think when when it says for there is suffering but no one suffers, someone could say, oh well, they believe in inherently existent suffering, so they're just negating the person. Yeah, but I don't know. They could be negating the the dukkha as well as the person. Mm-hmm. Once a monk asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, what now is aging and death? And for whom is there this aging and death? The Buddha responded that this is not a valid question because the monk presupposed a substantial self. This is in the Pali Canon. So whenever, you know, the somebody asked a question where the questioner was uh, assuming that there was a substantial self, the Buddha did not answer the question. Because if the Buddha said, answered the question straightforwardly, the person would think that their idea of a substantial existent self was being affirmed. And if the Buddha said, no, there's no such self, then the people would have fallen to uh, nihilism. So he didn't answer. The commentary likes such a question to a dish of delicious food served on a golden platter on top of which is a small lump of excrement. Okay? (laughs) Because... The person said, what now is aging and death? It's a good question. And for whom is there aging and death? So it sounds like a good question, but they were saying it, grasping at the wrong view. And so the Buddha couldn't answer it so that they would understand the answer properly. While the question about aging and death is legitimate, Asking it in terms of a substantial self contaminates the whole issue. Someone who thinks the self and the body are the same falls to the extreme of nihilism by believing that both become non-existent at death. So do sometimes you feel like you're your body? Yeah? When you were younger... Did you really feel like you're your body? No. People say, oh, you have a great body. And say, like, oh, I must be a good person. I am my body. Yeah. Are we our bodies? Because yeah. this is saying, if we are our body, and our body and the I, the self, were exactly the same thing, First of all, we wouldn't need to say the word I because body and I were synonymous. So whenever we would usually say I, you could just say body. So the body is thinking. Yeah, the body is sitting here listening to teachings. That doesn't sound right, does it? It's not the body that's doing that. It's the person. The body took out a life insurance policy. The body just graduated from college. 
No, we don't say that. If the bot, if the person were the body, we could say that. Okay, but they're not. So someone who thinks the self and the body are the same falls to the extreme of nihilism by believing that both become non-existent at death. If we're our body and our body dies at death and becomes, you know, what is it, from ashes to ashes and dust again. Anyway, it decays and all the bugs, 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 have a really good lunch. Okay, so somebody would think that the person, you know, totally becomes nihilistic or ceases to exist because the body decomposes. If that were the case, there would be no need to practice the path because samsara would end with death. Yeah, And this is the question for people who don't believe in rebirth. Yeah, what it, you know? What are you practicing, and why? Yeah, because if it ends at death, then that's the easy way out. Except it doesn't end at death. Yeah. Someone who thinks the self is one thing and the body is another, so the self and the body are two different things. That person. Um, falls to the extreme of absolutism by thinking that at death the self is released from the body and abides eternally. So at death, the body gets recycled, but now your soul goes to heaven or wherever your, your soul goes. I don't know. If the I were permanent and eternal, the path could not be put to an end, could not put an end to samsara, because something that is changeless cannot cease. Okay? So if there were a permanent person that isn't affected by any causes and conditions, that permanent person could never become a Buddha and their state of samsara could never cease. Not only did the Buddha refute a substantial self that is born, aging, and dies, he also denied that the body and by extension the other aggregates belong to such a person. So not only are the aggregates not the person, but the aggregates are not the possessions of such a substantially existent person. So here's the quotation, again from the Pali canon. Monastics, this body is not yours, nor does it belong to others. It is old karma to be seen as generated and fashioned by intention, as something to be felt. Therein, monastics, the instructed Arya disciple, attends carefully and closely 
to dependent arising itself. Thus, thinking, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So these lines are not only in the Pali Canon, they're in the the Rice Seedling Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra. Okay. So the explanation. This body is not ours because there is not an independent person who possesses it. Okay. So if there were a person who does not depend on the body, okay, the person and the body are two completely different things. They don't depend on each other. Then the body could be here and the person could be over here. Yeah. And there would be nothing wrong with that because it would be like a, a tree and a rhinoceros. They're two different objects. You don't confuse them. So the body and the, and the person are two different things like that. Okay, And there's no independent person who possesses the body. Yeah. It does not belong to others either because others also lack an independent self. So we don't have an independent self that the body could belong to. And others also don't have an independent self that our body belongs to. Although the body is not literally karma, it is called old karma because previously created karma was its condition. Okay, so when it says um, it, meaning the body, is old karma, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's action. It means it's the product of old karma that happened in previous lives. The karma is intention. Our volitional, mental, verbal, and physical actions generated this body and life. Did you ever think about that? That your previous mental, verbal, and physical actions generated this body and life. It doesn't mean that your actions made all the molecules come together to form your body. But, you know, it means that due to our actions, we took rebirth in this body. When we contemplate dependent origination, as Arya disciples do, we understand the mere conditionality by which these things come into being and cease. So mere conditionality, which means that when the causes are there and the conditions come, the result comes. Okay? When the causes and conditions are not there, the result does not come. Okay? If the causes and conditions go out of existence and they cease before producing a result, 
you're not going to get a result. Okay, so mere conditionality that all these things are self-included arise only because of causes and conditions. There's no self that created them. There's no God or external being who created it all. It happens simply due to causes and conditions. No owner, no controller, just causes and conditions. So Buddha Gosa answers the question, who experiences the result of karma? By first quoting an ancient Pali verse and then explaining it. So here's the verse. Experiencer is a convention. This is Pali tradition. Yeah, I want the Tibetans to read this. Experiencer is a convention for mere arising of the fruit or the result. Whenever they say fruit, it means result. The mere arising not the inherently existent arising. They say it fruits, meaning the result has come, as a convention. When a tree appears, when on a tree appears its fruit. Okay? So there's a tree. When fruit appears on the tree, we say the tree fruits. The tree produces fruit. We say that because it's the appearance of fruit on the tree. Yeah. Where was the fruit before it appeared on the tree? Yeah. Did it exist somewhere else? in some alternative universe, and then materialized on the tree? Yeah. Was it all these different atoms and molecules floating around, and somebody came along and went, and made it into a plum? Yeah. Where was the fruit? before it appeared on the tree. Yeah. If you say, well, there was no fruit. Yeah, there was no fruit before it appeared on the tree. The words sound great, but how are you thinking of the words? That there is absolutely no fruit in existence? You say there was no fruit before it appeared on the tree. Then then where did the fruit come from? It didn't come from itself, because there was no fruit before it appeared on the tree. So where did it come from? 
if you're grasping inherently inherent existence, you have to be able to find the fruit before it appeared on the tree. Because an inherently existent plum has in its own being the nature of plumness that can never be taken away from it. So it would have had to be a permanent plum that existed before it appeared. And this is what the Samkhis say. Okay? That things arise from themselves. They were part of a primal substance. Yeah, doesn't that sound good? Primal substance, fundamental nature. And it just appeared out of that. Yeah. If you told the biologist that that's how the plum appeared, would they believe you? No. But if you ask the the biologist where the plum was before it appeared on the tree, maybe they would say, oh, the plum was growing. But if you say the plum was growing, then there's an agent, the plum, that's doing an action, growing. But if the plum already existed while it was growing, it wouldn't need to grow. It would always already be there, wouldn't it? So how can you say, in the context of inherent existence, how can you say the plum is growing? Because that would mean the plum's already there. This is all chapter 8 stuff, but it's uh, volume 8. But this is really good. It, it makes us think about how do we conceive things? Yeah? Kind of, who was I before I was born? And you have this idea of there's a little thing that looks exactly like you, that's about, I don't know, maybe this big. And it, it has, it's replete with all of your ideas, all of your opinions, all of your biases. It is you in this little form. And that's what was born. And you already had a personality. Yeah? And you were there. You just manifested coming out of the womb. Yeah? But if that's the way it was, then how come, instead of this little thing that looks exactly like you now, there was a crying baby that came out of the womb? You say, oh, that was me. Really? Yeah, that baby lamb cell could could you know do the thing watching the do the tech part of a of a talk. Yeah, that was me. So me exists then, me exists now. Same me, non different me. Yeah, so you could yeah, we could get a bunch of babies to come here and uh you know, 
cut down all the ex the old stuff in the forest and run the abbey and cook lunch. Maybe we do have a bunch of babies doing all of that. <laughs> yeah. But if the if everything were already replete in the baby, yeah, then the baby would be an adult. Okay. I hope I've gotten you confused enough. Okay, so it is simply owing to the arising of, of uh, the arising of tree fruits, which are one part of the phenomena called a tree, that it is said the tree fruits, or the tree has fruited. Okay, likewise, it is simply owing to the arising of the fruit consisting of the pleasure and pain called experience, which is one part of the aggregates that as a collection are called devas in human beings, that it is said a deva or a human being experiences or feels pleasure or pain. There is therefore no need at all for a substantial experiencer. But when we experience pain, we say, I hurt. I experience pain. And we are sure there is a real me that experiences that pain. But there's not. One more paragraph. A substantial experiencer cannot be found. Experiencer and agent are mere conventions. Yeah, they're mere things that were conceived by our mind and given a name, but have no other existence besides that. So with that for a while. We say a human being experiences pleasure or pain simply because that feeling has arisen in the feeling aggregate. But there is no identifiable person who experiences pleasure or pain. In the bit you just read, is substantial here uh, synonymous with inherent, uh, inherently existent? Yeah. Yeah, for the prasangika, they're, they're synonymous. I do want to say, when I look at the level of um, hallucination and the level of the power of our minds to create this type of reality, it makes me believe that Buddhahood is doable. Mm. If I can conjure up through my karma the <laughs> appearance of all of this, including this form, this mind, this life, why can't that same mind through creating another set of causes and conditions, create a very, very different ex ex existence also as an appearance to the mind as well. I, I, I just, I'm starting to, to try to work with the fact that this is all created by my mind. Yeah. But there's a difference between the samsara created by your mind and the awakening created by your mind. Because mm -hmm. when you think my samsara... You are thinking my inherently existent samsara. Yeah. 
when you get to awakening, you're not thinking my inherently existent awakening. And now as an ordinary being, you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But there's neither samsara nor awakening. But the power of the mind to conjure the reality. That, yeah, that can but, make... but the, the, the power of the mind in, this, in, sams, in creating the samsara hallucination. is a total hallucination. Right. Right. The power of the mind, you know, that is an awakened mind, is something that is free from that hallucination. So it's not that you're replacing one hallucination with the other. Right, right. In, a, in awakening, there is no hallucination. Okay. So don't say, well, I can create a dog and I can create a cat, and they're actually both the same because they're both creations of our mind. In terms of being empty of inherent existence, samsara and nirvana are both empty. Right. But samsara is created out of a deluded mind. Right. Nirvana is created out of a purified mind. So they're very different in that way. And the potential to do that is the part that I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring for is yeah. that potential that is yeah, no the, longer delusion, no longer hallucination. Yeah, the, the potential is there in you because nothing exists inherently. Right, right. And because in your mind there are already the mental factors of wisdom and, con- and concentration and so on, but those mental factors need to be developed. Yeah. yeah. And other mental factors that you're very familiar with need to be. To be overcome and removed. So it's, it's not that you're exchanging one conspiracy theory for another one. So the idea is ultimately, samsara, nirvana, all things on the ultimate level, they're all empty of inherent existence. On the conventional level, they're different. 